Good evening, everyone. It's time for Necromaniacs. It's Thursday. This week, it's me and Jeff. Jeff, how's it going? Hello. Good, man. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. You know, by the time this uh, episode airs, I will be on the road. And, um, you know, with that said, there's going to be a couple of weeks where we're going to, you know, have to take off because uh, I haven't been around to record any episodes. So we'll be coming right back at you with some stuff when I get home. So, yeah, we got some interesting things lined up and, uh, you know, trying to do this, trying to squirrel away an hour, hour and a half to do a podcast on tour. I, I used to tour all the time. I know how almost impossible that is to get anything done that you want to do. So, Actually, this, this is the first time I'm going out with no laptop. I'm going out with just a, a tablet on this tour. Really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. No laptop. Do you find that makes a, that makes a difference? I don't know. We'll see, man. Like I, um. You know, I, I have like a brand new iPad, so I'm not taking any books with me. Everything's on my Kindle. All of our like uh, accounting stuff is on the cloud, you know? Right. Um, and there's like, I have like uh, Microsoft Word on my tablet so I can write and um, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, and with, I remember we did a tour, I think, but yeah, it was Palms, our sound guy had a tablet, and he was basically running the sound from his tablet. It was all digital boards, so like, you know, maybe you can do that. You can hijack a band's set while, while you're not playing, <laughs> just, uh, you know, completely fuck with their levels. Yeah, maybe I'll do that, yeah. Yeah, I'll keep it fun. <laughs> yeah, keep life interesting, you know. Yeah, exactly. Um, but before we get going, uh, you know, it's funny, I was realizing that between our little clique of people that do shows that do podcasts mm -hmm. we could program somebody's entire week just with the group the community here and of course i'm talking about you got horror wolf 666 on monday we have into the necrosphere on tuesday we have everything went black on wednesday we have necromaniacs on thursday and on Friday we have Break the Apocalypse. That's yeah. that's pretty pretty cool actually. Like if you just listen to us, that this group of of individuals, you will have all your podcasting needs covered. Exactly. Hey, I should start something on my own, so we'll have something for Saturday. Yeah, there you go. That that's yeah, a strong get... a strong statement, man. You know. Yeah, you know, I'll just get dusted and talk about crop circles or something. <laughs> oh, you mean uh, Fox News? Yeah, basically, or or no, the what's what's that newer version of Fox News, like the One Truth Network or something? Oh, that's Donald Trump's. Uh, that isn't that his his thing that only like twenty people subscribe to or something like that. Yeah. Oh boy, the world we live in. Like. Yeah. I also like to shout out uh, Iblis Manifestations. Uh, that's my buddy Cheyenne's uh, podcast. He's in a great band called Trivax from the UK, and um, mm -hmm. you know he's also an affiliate. So check out his show. Um, you can check it out on Spotify and pretty much everywhere else you can find uh, podcasts these days. Right on. What's been going on with you, man, outside from getting ready for tour? You've been reading anything, watching anything? Always reading stuff. Uh, work has been a real bitch. Um, been taking up a lot of my time, but I've gotten, I've, I've like gotten over the horizon with some real challenging stuff. So the next week or so should be pretty uneventful. Uh, and I'm, I'm about uh, maybe three quarters of the way done with my reread of Dracula, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Right. Uh, I have the uh, this like s slick Penguin Classics version of it, hardcover with this like awesome you know artwork. And when I picked that up, I decided to reread 
Dracula, and it's, it's you know one of the greatest books ever. Um, right. As far as like stuff I've watched, you know, we're in the midst of the Joe Bob uh, show is is up and running again on Fridays, and um, so notable stuff with that was uh, Black Sunday, which is awesome. Uh, Night of the oh, Living. the Baba movie. Yeah, man, it's been a yeah, minute a since one. I've seen that. Yeah, yeah, it's been I think before I lived in L.A., so we're talking. I don't know, 17 years maybe since I've seen that. You know, and and it's a high quality version that they have streaming and it looks great, you know, and Barbara Steele is awesome and it's a cool story, you know, and it's, uh, for the time it came out, I can imagine it being kind of extreme. You know, if you think about the time frame and the subject matter and all that kind of stuff and that that's a great, great movie and, and um, another classic rewatch was uh, Night of the Living Dead, which was also on Joe Bob's uh, Friday night show. I bet that looked great. Ah, oh, yeah, it was, and that, and that, oh, every time I watch that, it just reinforces how much of a classic and how ahead of his time that movie was. Oh, absolutely. I feel like every time I watch something in Romero's trilogy, but at the moment I'm watching it, it is my favorite movie in the trilogy. Like if I'm watching Day of the Dead, I'm like, this is the best one. But then I'll watch Dawn of the Dead, like, no, this is the best one. And then, yeah, same thing with Night of the Living Dead, like, no, this is definitely the best one. <laughs> So, Day, Day of the Dead is my second in the in the trilogy. It's like it's such like a nihilistic film, you know. It really is. It's the darkest of the three by by leaps and bounds. But it, it says something about how strong those three movies are. Where at like any given moment when you're watching them, you think it's the best one. It just they're all pretty much great on their own level. Uh, I checked out uh, Brotherhood 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 of Satan at. Uh, are my buddy Carl's um, recommendation, and that's a, a great satanic horror film. Uh, you know, it's almost like a Peck and Pot esque entry into the satanic cult subgenre of horror films. No, I don't know that one. I recommend it. And uh, all right, I'm writing it down. Yep, caught the sadness, which Mike and I are going to be talking about on our next episode. And um, you know that everyone everyone seems to be talking about that movie, and it's on Shutter right now. Oh well, there you go. Yeah, and uh, and then I st- I've been watching We Own the City, the new, um, you know, kind of Baltimore crime by the same guy who brought brought us all the Wire, and that's actually I wrote that down too. I've yeah. been watching that as well. Yeah, yeah. It's what do you think of that? I uh, I love it. Yeah. Uh, my only complaint <laughs> is that it's not all available at once. Yeah, yeah. I would love to just binge that. I've been enjoying coming home from work on. Uh, I guess uh, Mondays or Tuesdays, whenever it airs, and then and plopping down uh, for an hour and watching that, and you get completely lost in these characters. It was a little confusing with the time jumps at first, but it, you know it takes you a couple episodes to kind of figure that all out. A minor complaint. Um, I'll say this though: it's not the Wire, and I don't mean that in a bad way. People are like, "Oh, this is uh, this is just another version of the Wire." I think it is completely its own thing. Yeah, totally. And, and uh, it, it actually has, like, it speaks a lot about police brutality. I mean, that's kind of like what the whole, you know, no- nexus of the story is about that, you know? Is like right, exactly. Crooked like cops, cops are, and police, police brutality. Cops are kind of the bad guys in this, but it's not just uh, a simple examination of that. Like The Wire, it goes much deeper and goes uh, and shows that this is a systemic issue. And it's not something that is easily fixable by any means. And, John, uh, John Bernthal's great in it, too. Oh, man, dude. He, how <laughs> hard is he nailing that Baltimore accent? 
I um, <laughs> it's funny. Like I just I like John Bernthal as an actor, and but there are times when he's not that good, you know. But he's really? great. Um, there are times where you can kind of see the wires with him. You know what I mean? Mm. Where you can see him acting. You know, I guess sure, that's the okay. only. But then again, some of our greatest actors are like that. You know what I mean? Where you can see them acting a little bit. But yeah, I feel sure. like in this film, Bernthal is that character, you know? Yeah, I mean, like I said, he has that accent nailed, that fucking hothead douchebag cop. I think when he plays a douchebag, he excels. Because I think maybe, I, I can't say this for sure, I think that might be closer to, like, you know, who he actually is. I think I told you this. I was in a, in a like, cafe once, and he was sitting next to us. And he just like, you know, he just carried himself like one of these overconfident douchebags and like he had like a Von Dutch hat pulled like you know crooked <laughs> off to the side, like barely on his head, you know, reading a script. I was curious of what script he was reading. <laughs> but you know, I wanted to like look over and see. But I don't know, he just wrote like if I didn't know who he was, I'd just look to my right and be like, Who's this douchebag? <laughs> you know? So, uh, so maybe that's why he's good at playing like these kind of like fucking meatheads because he's maybe he is a little bit of one himself. Now that's just speculation. I don't know the guy. I don't know anything about him. He's but. gonna like try next time. He, he's gonna be on the Joe Rogan Experience in Austin. And he's gonna be like, "What's up, bitch?" <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, what's up? He's gonna talk to me in that weird accent. Like, <laughs> You've just been talking shit, eh? <laughs> I can't do the Boston uh, Baltimore accent, man. It's very difficult if you don't have that pattern and you're, you're speaking you know yeah it's very similar to like uh you know the the pennsylvania accent you know it's like you know a lot of yous and yins and y'alls and you know go home like shit like that um yeah, he nails it though man he's fucking great and everyone's great in it you got a couple people who pop from the wire you'll recognize popping up in this and obviously different roles um great show uh and cool that there it's just uh miniseries it's not going to be a bunch of seasons of this it's just going to tell one story and that's it so i think that's great i like self-contained things like that but at the same time when this is over i can really imagine wanting more of that there's another movie that bernthal is in called sweet virginia that's oh yeah yeah yeah. really really good it's got uh christopher abbott in it another like super uncomfortable actor and uh yeah. Im imogen poots is in it as well yeah i love saying her name imogen poots yeah you think you'd change that name for a stage name but you know hey whatever yeah and and sweet virginia is interesting because it reminds me of a film that like could have been like a black and white movie with marlon brando playing the role that bernthal plays you know yeah very underrated yeah movie. And, and he did a great job in that because he's kind of like this broken um it's almost like a Cormac McCarthy story, you know. He it has like this like super like American like vibe to it, like down and out like people and like Bernthal's character owns a um a motel and uh he's like a former rodeo rider. So it it has like that kind of thing and when you read like a Cormac McCarthy story, it's like these characters, these like American characters who are past their glory. And it's, I can imagine, like, if this film was made in the 50s, that Brando would play the same role, like this kind of vulnerable, broken guy, you know? Yeah. But, like, super yeah. physical at the same time. So, yeah, he, he's great in that movie. So, you know, check yeah, it out. Yeah, he is. Yeah, I got to rewatch that underrated movie. Is he also in Shot Caller? Am I mistaken? 
Yes. Yeah. He plays a douchebag in that, like this white power. Like, <laughs> yeah. That's a really good movie. It is completely unrealistic, but re- totally enjoyable though. Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of unrealistic, I got, I got to bring this up. You yeah, know, man, go for you, it. You know me, I hate to be negative. <laughs> um, okay. But uh, I started watching the show, I believe, because uh, of uh, our third podcast host, Mike Scandato, is uh, a big fan of this show. I finished Ozark. Okay. I and, have yet to uh, see any any episodes of Ozark. I, if I can spare one person from ever sitting through that garbage, I, I, I hope it's you. Because, okay. man, like, I realized, I think, maybe partway through season one or season two, I was like, oh, I'm hate-watching this. <laughs> like... I'm invested in this story, but I hate everything about this. The show wants to be a prestigious streaming show. It wants to be, you know, a, a Breaking Bad or a House of Cards or especially Breaking Bad, which it is clearly influenced by. But whereas Breaking Bad, of course, was kind of pulpy and unrealistic, but it was a great character study and had great themes of uh, desires destroying you and ego destroying you. This show is just, uh, Ozark is just absurd from minute one. And it is overacted, ridiculously overplotted. Characters are constantly doing things that make absolutely no sense. But it creates drama on the show, even though people in real life would never in a million years act like this. Um, I think the performances that everyone praises are some of the worst performances on the show. Um, there's that actress, I, I forget her name. Uh, she's a very good actress, but she's bad in this. Like, or maybe just everyone, she's really good and everyone around her is real bad. I don't know, because she's doing this like hardcore, like Southern accent, which is, I, I don't even know, is that how they talk in the Ozarks? I don't know, but it's very over the top. Um, Laura Linney, who plays the wife, Jason Bateman, is completely over the top uh the whole show is just over the top but i did watch four seasons of it so that says something like there 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 is it is entertaining uh i'm not going to give away the very ending but it clearly wants to land like a sopranos ending or like the shield ending where it hits you like a ton of bricks and you go well like you realize like this is the perfect ending for that show this show wants to have that moment but it doesn't. It thinks it does, but it doesn't. You know, The Shield is another series I need to finish watching. I only watched the first season of that, and I actually really enjoyed that. It gets so much better. Yeah. The first season was very, like, kind of villain of the week. Uh, I think around season two or three, they start to like, develop uh, arcs for the entire season and kind of do away with that, like, you know, catching the criminal of the week kind of, kind of thing. But, I mean, the first season of Shield is very good at that but it becomes something so much more, something so much better. And I think it ends on a pitch perfect note like the Sopranos did. That's cool. Cause like I, I, it's on Hulu now, I think the shield. So I have to, you know, Oh, is it? I think so. Yeah. And like I was telling you before we started, I'm recovering from a staph infection. So I have to stay home and I can't go to the gym and, uh, and I'm on antibiotics. And, uh, so I'm just kind of chilling at the house. So maybe during my recovery, um, I'll check out some more shit like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, you can shadow box while you watch it or something. <laughs> uh, on a more positive note, also streaming, I rewatched Looper. You've seen Looper, right? Oh, yeah, right? it's great. Yeah, I enjoyed that. It is great. It's, it, it's a strange movie. I think this is probably the third time I've seen it, but 
it really starts off one way and it totally becomes something different about an hour into the movie where it's like it starts as sort of a sci-fi, you know, high concept, you know, uh, time travel kind of thing and then turns into this small indie drama that takes place on a farm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Ryan Johnson wasn't completely proven at that point. He made two films prior. Both could not be more different from each other. He made the high school noir brick which I think is a well-made, very deeply silly movie. Uh, his next movie was this Adrian Brody movie, like The Brothers something, I can't quite remember. Uh, but it was very, like, Wes Anderson-y, like, completely different. And then he comes out with, like, Looper, so you're not quite sure what to expect from this guy yet. I think Looper is a filmmaker really finding his voice. You really see what a strong writer Ryan Johnson is, and then even further when you see Knives Out, like this like very carefully constructed and plotted murder mystery. He's very good at uh, complicated, naughty plots and, and, and things like that. He went pretty wrong with his Star Wars movie, but you know I know that's highly debatable. It's either your favorite Star Wars movie or your least favorite. Now I'm somewhere in the middle on it. But uh, interesting filmmaker, um, interesting movie. Joseph Gordon-Levitt as a young Bruce Willis is a little hard <laughs> to, to, to get into at first, but uh, I think he does a good job nailing his like mannerisms and speech patterns. But he doesn't look a goddamn thing like him, even with like that, that prosthetic mouth and nose. Like it just it's distracting. But great, great movie and very, very unique. And uh, it's really, really good to rewatch. Like I said, third time seeing it, and I'm still finding new things to to see in it and and, and enjoy about it. Did you check out Outer Range yet? You know, I have not, but I'm going to. Um, you know, former ISIS drummer Aaron Harris was uh, just texting me about that. He's watching it. It's good. It's like I said, it's a weird tale. You know, it's it has all of the trappings of uh, something that I know I would I enjoy, and I think you will too. You know, it's like um, you know, it just has that interdimensional sort of thing, very uh, philosophical. There's like multiverse you know underpinnings of the storyline uh really well acted uh image and poots is in it as well <laughs> <laughs> still keeping that name <laughs> uh you that's know, josh, josh brolin as well right? yeah josh brolin's in it. yeah it's great great yeah. yeah um yeah i'm gonna check that out man I, I i'm gonna get to it you know it's funny i think last time we talked at the time before we talked about severance that was a couple of weeks ago, and I still can't stop thinking about that. Dude. That's how good that show was. This is yeah. weeks later, and I think about that concept constantly. Every time I go to work, I'm thinking, would I do this? Would I separate my work self from my my home self just, just to, like, have it go by in a, in a snap and I'm off work again? Would I do that to myself? What would it be like for the me that's stuck at work? Like, would he be me, only, like, not know? <laughs> Or, or would it be would I be a completely different person and enjoy this kind of thing? You know, it, it's such a great concept, such a and and perfectly executed show. I cannot say enough good things about it. Apple Plus is kind of killing it, really. I mean, they have um, Servant, which is another good good uh, show that uh, Brandon Legion actually recommended that one as well as Severance. Um, Foundation, you know, the Isaac Asimov, uh, you know novel series the trilogy i think it's three books that they adapted into um a series and uh yeah i think apple plus is a, a quiet quietly gaining ground 
in the world of streaming media, I think. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I think they started on the wrong foot. I know they had some like new show that was wild, widely panned by everyone. <laughs> and, um, yeah. but, uh, you know, they, you know, you can't knock them all out of the park and especially right out of the gate. Um, I, I think I might actually cancel my Netflix subscription. You know, you're not alone in that. Uh, my girlfriend yeah. canceled hers. So, you know, but I have my own and a lot of times I'm like, why, why do I keep this? Like, I don't really watch anything on Netflix. Yeah, me too. It's like, I, I never re watch Netflix. You know, and the last time I watched something on Netflix, it was that piece of shit, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, that's for, see, there you go. Like all their, their original stuff is, is, uh, as far as movies goes. Are, are universally bad well okay the irishman is the exception yeah and you know that's scorsese yeah that's but always and, the exception and if you really wanted to you can you could rent that somewhere or buy it or something like that you know right yeah um yeah and even like you know it, it's cool that you know they have you know better call style and uh that's how i rewatched that and breaking bad that kind of stuff but yeah again like I don't know. Is it, worth, is it worth fifteen bucks a month or however much I fucking pay? Well, one, yeah. Once you work your way through those, what's the point, really? You know, it's like it's it's getting to be that point where I've seen all the shows I like and the the new movies that they have are terrible, and uh, so I'm debating on on. There's a couple things I I might hang in there for, but um, eventually I'll probably unless they really get their shit together, I'm probably going to cancel. Yeah, there's nothing coming to Netflix that I'm super excited about that I can think of. And I kind of think of them as like the MySpace or Friendster of streaming. Like, yeah, they they really got the ball rolling, but someone else picked that up and did something way better. And that seems to be what's happening to Netflix. Yeah, totally. And uh, so for this week's episode, we're going to talk about a film that will never be on netflix ever probably <laughs> it's not anywhere now it's not anywhere now like uh i defy anyone to find a way to to watch this movie in a reliable manner you know yeah i mean if you want to see this you're gonna have to shell out money because uh, the dvd is long out of print and the blu-ray uh reissue is now also out of print do you have any idea why uh, i i can speculate well, what, what's <laughs> your speculation about it tell me tell us it's too weird for anyone there's a very small vocal group of people who love this movie and then there's the rest of the world that either doesn't know it exists or doesn't care and i, I think that's got to be it. it's just a, a serious lack of interest in this movie um that, that'd be my guess hmm okay so, of course, we're talking about Possession, the 1981 film directed by Andre Zalowski, who also wrote it along with Frederick Tutin. And um, this is a uh, French-West German. Notice how I say West German. Uh, yes. Collaboration. And 1981, there was, uh, Germany was, uh, was broken up into two uh, countries back then. Yeah, it kind of plays a part in the atmosphere of this movie. That's right. And um, 124 minutes, so it's on the long side. It yes. was uh, released on May 25th, 1981 in Cannes Film Festival, and then May 27th, 1981 in France. So uh, it probably has never had a theatrical release officially in the United States. I mean, I'm sure it has played at, um, you know, your Nighthawks and, you know, your more like niche 
artsy film houses and places like that. Yes, it, it recently screened in Los Angeles, I believe, at the Egyptian Theater, fairly recently in the last year. The cast has a a young Sam Neill as mm-hmm. as Mark, and Isabel Adjani, who plays a dual role as Anna and Helen. One of my favorite characters in the film is Heinz Bennett as Heinrich. <laughs> I had a feeling you'd like Heinrich. <laughs> And uh, Michael Hobgen as the son, Bob. So, yeah. Yeah. Small cast, uh, again, which is something we like here. Very there's, manageable to talk about. Yeah, you know, there's other people in the film, but these are the main players, you know. Now, before we get into that, we, we talked a little bit about how obscure this movie is. How did you come to find this movie? Um, I don't remember who told me about this, man. It, it just, I guess, like, I've discovered it from just talking to other people about movies, you know, over the years. And it's always been this kind of unicorn film that was out there that no one's ever really seen except for a few, you know? And, um, you know, as uh, my journey through life continued, uh, I met people like you and Rennie who have seen this film. And uh, Rennie actually loaned me his DVD. He mailed it to me from Philadelphia so I could watch it. So no, nice. So respect, you know, thank you very much for, for, for allowing me to see this movie. So I'm really excited about that. And if you own that movie, like I do, um, it's not something you're, you're willing to part with. So, uh, this guy obviously really trusts you because I'm sure he shelled out some money for this. Yeah. Yeah. I'm um, a trustworthy guy, you know? Yeah. You know, somewhat, you know, <laughs> <laughs> somewhat. <laughs> um, yeah. Like I paid, I think, right around the neighborhood of like a hundred dollars, I think for this. Um, I found out about this movie because, well, you know, like, you know, I was a musician for a living for a while and with that comes a lot of downtime. And one of my hobbies was reading about horror movies. And, you know, if something piqued my interest, I'd, you know, walk on over to Amoeba and see if they had it and try to find it. And then this movie came up and I know I mentioned this before on the podcast, but this movie came up under Lovecraftian horror. Like I was really, you know, in one of my many Lovecraft phases and was looking for movies that were similar to, to, to his writing. And this came up. Um, so the more I read about it, the more I was like, I have to see this. I have to find a copy of it. I think I got this on eBay, which I mean, I don't have bought anything on eBay in well over a decade. Um, because there was an 80-something minute version of this that was more available, but the full uncut two-hour, four-minute version was very hard to find. And, you know, I paid a, paid a good amount of money, you know, 100 bucks. It's not a ton of money, but, you know, for a movie that you've never seen, it is. A lot of, there's a lot of people out there that would, uh, would you know, say we were, were, would be critical of that decision. But I think that anyone listening to this podcast will not criticize you for making a decision like that totally worth it in, in my eyes. And sometimes you get burned by that. You get so excited about a movie you've only read about and haven't seen. Sometimes I mean, you, you watch it and you're like, oh, you know, I can see maybe for the time this was something to, to really talk about. But Possession was not one of those. Possession was first, first viewing. I was floored on, on, on many levels. Um, this is a whole lot of movie to take in. Um, this is not for the horror crowd that says what's wrong with a good fun horror movie. This is not that. 
at all. This is totally an art film with a lot on its mind filtered through a horror lens. It's also not Lovecraftian, really. No. I mean, there is a cosmic monster, but I mean, you could cut all that stuff out of the movie and you'd still have a movie. Like it's, it is part of the plot. It's a big part of the plot, but this movie could also exist without all that stuff and just be about the family. So yeah, very there, unique. There, there's no cosmicism in this. No, no dark philosophies or nihilism or any of those things that would be in a Lovecraftian film or, or anything that would be considered weird fiction, I guess. I mean, if anything, this is, uh, I'm going to say a couple things, actually. The first thing is that this is kind of like a prototypical uh, elevated horror film. You know what I mean? And I, and I really don't like using that term elevated horror. But sure. in a way, it's a it's like 20, at least 20 or 30 years ahead of, of anyone taking the genre seriously in like a creative way. You know, I mean, this came oh, out in 1981. I, you know what I mean? Yeah. So they probably filmed it in 1980. Um yeah, very ahead of its time. This is in a league of movies like like Deli, Denny Villeneuve's Enemy or you know David Lynch's Lost Highway where everything this movie speaks in metaphors and is you know it, it does have a narrative but it's really about themes and ideas more than it is about a driving plot. Although the movie does have that. It is maybe difficult to follow at times, but it's there. Yeah, and that, and I was gonna, I was gonna reference Lynch too because there's a lot of um, just like unsettling stuff that happens. There's, uh, you, you're clearly in a different reality than the one that we all live in. You know, there's like a, which I guess underscores the kind of subjective point of view that somebody might have when they're going through these extreme situations in their life. You know, like you know, everyone probably listening to this show has gone through something very very extreme and it's almost like the whole world seems fucked up and like on it on its off axis and unhinged and that's kind of like what this movie makes me feel like i'm watching just everyone going through like the worst time of their life basically yeah absolutely and i'm glad you brought up this does seem to exist in some sort of alternate reality and i don't know if it's the time that it's filmed there's they're like but they and, and like you said, west to berlin there are like uh, the the city is very bleak. There's no sunshine in this movie at all. The streets are very unpopulated and desolate. And the shot you do get shots of barbed wire with like guards. There is this the sort of like a few shots salute that you're you know like uh, you're being watched, and it just adds to the overall oppressive bleakness to to this whole movie. Have you ever been in Germany when the sun was out? That's a good question. I don't know if I've ever been in Europe when the sun was out. <laughs> yeah, I was, it, as you said that, I was thinking to myself, I'm like, all the times I've been to Germany, I wonder if I've ever been there when it, the sun was shining. And I don't think I, don't I, think I have. So. I think it comes out from like 12 midnight to like 12.05 a.m. <laughs> like, Germany is such a weird place. I love it. I love it. Not talking shit. But uh, it's a very strange, bleak kind of place. So perfect setting for a, a, a movie like this. And I also want to reference this, uh, reminds me of David Cronenberg's The Brood in, in a lot of ways. I could see that, yeah, yeah. 
Uh, I'm not sure which came first. I think this did. Uh, but I, 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 it, there are similarities and in execution somewhat, but a lot of similarities in, in, in scene. And I it did do a little bit of research. I know the director of this film was dealing with some very hard things in his life while writing and making this movie. He was going through a divorce. And I mean, to say that it shows in this film is an understatement. Just uh, an FYI, uh, The Brood came out in 1979, so it pre Okay, so this is before. Okay, so hey, maybe he was influenced by David Cronenberg. Yeah. It's totally, it, it does have a Cronenberg-esque feel to it. Yeah. Well, it's it, that you, now that you said that, this movie is basically about a marriage that's falling apart. Um, we have uh, Sam Neill, the character Mark, who returns home from work. He was on some assignment, which... In some places, they say that he was a spy, but I don't, I don't know. I, don't, I mean, he was doing some kind of high-level undercover work for... Something very nefarious, working for sketchy people, I'd say. Yeah, sketchy, like, high-level business types, you know, on, on a corporate level. Like, he was doing some task for somebody that was a, a well-paying gig for these uh, corporate guys that look like maybe bankers or something like that, you know? It's it's such an interesting way to start off this movie too because you almost forget it by the end <laughs> that like oh yeah this guy does this kind of sketchy thing we don't really know too much about yeah and uh, you know it kind of starts off in this very uh, you know very sober in- environment you know he's in an office you know they're paying him and they want to keep him on you know and um and the, he's like well no this is uh you know you should start turning this over to my my successor. You know, that was something that came up as like, I'm done. There's a, you know, this is for my successor. Okay. Now mm-hmm. that, I, I wonder if that was some kind of foreshadowing for what later happens in the film. I was wondering that myself, but I didn't see how that connection uh, could be made. But yeah. I, I'm, I'm sure we'll get to that. Like I didn't see the connection, but. Uh, I'm going to have to also, watch this a few more times and see if I can find yeah. something at that with that. I should warn you, just discussing themes of this movie, like, I, I don't want to give everything away, but there will be some minor spoilers here. Uh, to, if you really want to get into the good stuff, we're going to have to talk about it. Yeah. So if you haven't seen this, highly recommend, highly recommend you see <laughs> I don't know where you. the hell, maybe you guys can come over to my house when I get back from tour, and we can all watch <laughs> it. Because I have, a, you know, I got this copy we can watch here at my house. Do you guys want to bring some pizzas and stuff? We can chill out here. <laughs> Well, you know what I'm thinking? If you're listening to this horror podcast, like you're probably a fan of horror, which means you probably know someone who has this. Some, or know someone who, or, uh, who knows someone who has this. But good point, Mike. Point taken. Yeah, like hard, I said, you know, I'll be back in the middle of June. So you guys, could, you know, swing by. We'll crank up the movie, get some pizzas, like that kind of stuff, you know. You heard it here first. The first <laughs> Necromaniac screening at Mike's house. Um <laughs> Tell your friend he's not getting his movie back. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, the movie starts off like that, uh, something completely. And then it really switches gears pretty quickly. You know, you see him uh, coming, you know, getting out of a cab with all his suitcases and things. And his wife is there to greet him. And you see right away things are very tense between them. And they haven't completely broken down yet. It's in that beginning stages 
of a breakup before you've really truly accepted what's happening. I think for, for, for both of them. Well, well there, uh, there's also, she asked him a question. It looks like after they, they just, you know, finished having sex where she asked him if he was faithful to her, why he was gone. Yes. And then um, he's like, uh, he basically, he doesn't say he, he's like, I forgot the words he used exactly, but he's like, you know, basically I was, I was faithful basically, you know? Right. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't quite catch that. Interesting. Um, but it was her that has, uh, has, has, has been unfaithful. And from here on out, the movie ramps it up pretty quickly. (laughs) Like, yeah. And there's some stuff in there in, in the unraveling of their relationship that people would definitely get offended by these days you know, which I think is awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, like uh, pretty much like, you know, Mark, uh, you know, is you know, his wife is out uh, for the night and he's, you know, suspicious. He's looking around the house for evidence of, of, of uh, infidelity. And that's where he comes across a postcard from Heinrich, one of the best characters in the movie. <laughs> and, you know, he leaves and this is where they're like really the, we got to talk about the performances in this movie, man. I, I, I got the distinct feeling that making this movie was not easy on anyone, especially the actress that plays Anna. Yeah. Isabel uh, Ajani. Yeah. I, they like from scene to scene actors act in such strange ways in this movie. I mean, obviously it was guided by the director, but it's almost like I have a feeling a lot of them were very good. Like, what are we making? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, at one point, Sam Neill's just sort of looking around his apartment and it just kind of cuts to him. And he's got like, he's like sweaty. He's got like a, a, a full beard. And he's like living in this like trash hotel. <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, interesting thing is he's basically like, it shows him going through withdrawal, like something like someone who was like a heroin addict or a junkie or anything. That's exactly how he's behaving. He's shaking, sweaty, he's all fucking like twitchy. And and there's the scene in the cafe where they meet and she tells him that she's unfaithful to him. And, uh, you know, then he asks all these questions that are just so fucking uncomfortable, man. Like, you know, did you have sleep with him more than once? Did you do you like him more than me? And like all this like really, really heavy stuff, man. And it's like, it makes sense that, uh, that Zalowski was going through a divorce during this whole thing. Cause this is not the, you know, the output of somebody who's in a healthy mind space. You know what I mean? Absolutely not. And I'm glad you brought that scene up. I really like the way they, they frame that scene where they're having this intense conversation that I think everyone in the world has had a similar conversation, but they're not facing each other. They're facing away from each other. Yeah. And it's one of the few times like they're ha- like, it's tense, it's sad, but it's, it starts civil. And then, you know, Mark goes fucking ape shit. But yeah. it, it was just interesting. They're not facing each other. They can't. They can't quite do that yet. And then Mark, you know, they it just ramps up, and he just starts turn, overturning tables. He like smacks her, and like the cooks, the guys that work in the kitchen, run out and they tackle him. And all this like really extreme <laughs> stuff. Yeah, it, it, exactly. And from here on out, the movie just gets odder and odder and odder. Just more and more strange as it goes along. Like I said, like. Uh, uh, Sam Neill's character is just like, you know, shaking, withdrawal, like falling through the hallways, covered in sweat, uh, not knowing how long he's been there. And, you know, then we get to another 
big, big theme in the movie because this really, this movie is really about themes more than anything else. Um, he decides to sort of get his hair. This, this struck me as funny. He shaves, but he keeps that like sweaty, gross suit on. Like yeah. he looks like you know the keyboard player for the bad seats after they get off stage <laughs> or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he goes back to his apartment to find his son. Bob is uh, the the uh, the apartment is in complete disarray. Bob is like covered in jelly, and and food and stuff. And like at one point he examines his son, and I think we're supposed to uh, get that he is malnourished. Like yeah, that's what I was getting out of it. That he wasn't he wasn't being taken care of. Yeah, exactly. And that is a very big big part of this movie: uh, neglect and collateral damage. And all the the shrapnel that hits all of these other people when a relationship is falling apart, and who does it hit more than than this poor son who um, is gro- not being taken care of by the mother? And you know, uh, Mark and Neil's character is like out of the picture at that point. And uh, you know, you just—it's a really sad, disturbing sort of scene. Like you see that in movies about drug addicts. You see that in uh, front people in real life uh, who, who are addicts, but like, this is a, uh, you know, a, a divorce drama, basically. You, you're not expecting to see this like filthy kid, you know, with, uh, with supposedly two loving parents who, uh, who are, are so in the thralls of their misery and their own shit, they can't really see like, how this is affecting the, their son. They're not even really thinking about him. That That's the thing that also about Mark is like, I, I kind of doubt that he actually was a loving father because there was a point in the beginning where he said that he didn't even want to be part of Bob's life anymore. That's true. You know, that's true. And that is another thing that this movie does so well. The, the, the things that like we can say to each other when we're trying to hurt that person. Yeah. I think that's a, a very relatable thing. We've all been in breakups. We've all said fucking things we don't mean to just dig that stinger in a little more. I think that's what he was doing. He was just really upset and like, oh, you don't want me? Well, I don't want to be involved in this life at all then. Fuck you. Like, I want nothing to do with the son. I don't think Mark really meant that. There's yeah. a scene that doesn't quite mirror that, but there's a scene where the wife starts saying her very horrible things to him. Like, yes, I've been sleeping around. I've been fucking everyone. I fuck everything. And well, I don't think that's true either. Again, in the heat of the moment, she's just trying to upset him. And I, these are real things that happen in real life. And I think anyone watching can, can probably recognize that moment as like, Oh yeah. Yeah. I've been there. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, because yeah, because ironically, Mark does become the caretaker of Bob, you know, and the one who's actually, uh, you know, neglecting him is is um, is Anna. Yeah, and I think this would be a good point to to mention. You mentioned earlier Anna. Um, there, uh, the actress. So I can't pronounce her fucking name. Isabel Ajani. Isabel Ajani. She plays two roles in this, and then it's not by accident. There, there's a big theme of, of doppelgangers in this movie. And when it comes to Anna, you know, we meet Helen pretty much right after this scene. And Helen is also played by the same actress who's a dead ringer for Anna with the exception that she has green eyes and slightly different hair. And 
And she's the, for me, uh, the diametric opposite of a type of person, though, than, than Anna. Exactly. Um, this is a big part of the movie. I think this is Helen is the ideal version of Anna in, in Mark's eyes. You know, it's the, it's the angel and the whore. His wife is the whore. And this is the angelic side because Anna is sweet and kind and laughs and takes care of Bob whenever it's needed. It's almost like Helen could be a fantasy. Like she could not be real. You know, I, I'm glad you said that because earlier we were talking about similarities with David Lynch's films, like, you know, specifically um, in, in a lot of Lynch's films, like The Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive, there's like the mirror, the reflection of certain characters. You know what I mean? Like, right. And th this is, this film kind of has that, in my opinion, the way I read, read this situation is the same thing where they're literally played by the same actress, similar to uh, Patricia Arquette in, um, the Lost Highway, you know, except that neither one of them are very good people, though, unfortunately, but yeah, exactly. But, uh, yeah. But I, it, in a way, this whole movie is kind of like this fever dream of projection and and obsession. You know what I mean? Like and, you know, we keep talking about the hell that people go through when they're going through breakups and divorces and they're separating from someone that they have a life with and just the phantoms that end up being in in your in your world you know what i mean and and even if you look at it in that way even anna and her behavior is probably filtered through you know the eyes of somebody who's who's trying to vilify her anyway you know because we also talked about how you know oh you know there are people are saying things to hurt each other that aren't actually true you know what i mean so i don't know there's just a lot of the things that came to mind like because, you know, I watched this film a couple of times, and the first time I enjoyed it, like, okay, this is like a crazy movie. But then as time went on, I'm like, yeah, you know, this is like some meditation on on breaking up with someone or going through a divorce or having someone that was important in your life, like, no longer part of your life, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned, like, fever dream. I wrote down, I thought, like, this is like a dream someone going through a breakup would have. Like it has that almost sort of logic to it where it doesn't really have a lot of logic to it. Like things are just sort of happening and people are acting strange and there's no explanation for it. Uh, also to your point where you said like, you know, uh, talking about Anna's behavior, this movie like could be very one-sided and sort of like judgmental, but it is not. You have a director who's going through a divorce and I think he sees himself in Mark. I also think he sees himself in Anna, you get both perspectives on this divorce and how, like, you know, it seems like he's had an intense reflection on his divorce where he's like angry and hurt, but he can have perspective. Like at other points, like he did see Aunt, like Anna's pain and, and, and what she's going through. Like, it's not just Mark's story. And I think the movie is way more interesting because of that. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff that resonated in this film with me too. Uh, you know, I've gone through a divorce or not divorce, but uh, yeah, I've gone. I've been divorced. Yeah. I've never been. I, I have. I, I've I've gone through divorce. Yes. But you know, I I, had a, I went through a breakup not too long ago. Uh, you know, and there, you know, there a lot of, a lot of the kind of projections and things you know were, were sort of rang true with this film. You know, and um, yeah, you know, just the 
vehemence that you have against that other person, uh, you start constructing them as a different type of person than they probably really are, you know, and then the same thing with yourself, like, you know, ultimately, there's, uh, you know, a reckoning between there's actually ends up being two marks, you know, at the end. Yeah, so we'll, which we'll, is yeah, we'll, we'll get, get to that there. later, though. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So where were we? Um, yeah. So like the movie is uh, going back and forth between perspective. You get Mark's perspective, you get Anna's perspective. And one of the more interesting scenes is when Mark finally meets the, the uh, mistress or the, uh, you know, the, Heinrich. Uh, the Heinrich, man, this fucking guy, dude, everyone knows a Heinrich. Like Heinrich is the guy that fucks your girlfriend and then wants to be your buddy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, uh, it's, it, it, he's a great character and kind of funny. I mean, not that there's a lot of comic relief in this movie, but I think you're supposed to see Heinrich as kind of like a goofy, silly character. Well, he's, first of all, he's much older than both of them. Okay. He's probably like 50 years old. And yeah. He still lives at home with his mom. <laughs> yeah. That actually plays. Yeah. That, that, and that's not just like a little side detail. His mom has a kind of not a major part in the movie but you know she's brought back later yeah he's one of these full of shit guys you know who's like some sort of like would-be intellectual you know um uh is is kind of like in some ways he 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 could be this like kind of new age like bullshit artist you know oh totally pseudo intellectual uh he's he's got his like shirts open you know and stuff like that <laughs> like showing a little too much chest, you know, yeah, drives a motorcycle, drives a motorcycle, uh, you know, has tra traveled all the time because he lives with his mom. He doesn't have to have a job probably, you know, <laughs> Yeah, um, or he comes from money or something. Or he comes from money. Yeah. You don't, you don't get the sense that this dude has ever had to like dig a ditch for his life or, you know, for a living or anything or work. You know what I mean? He's like this comfortable dude. That's always the kind of guy so, or girl someone finds when they're in an unhappy relationship and, and like are just enthralled with this person that is so different than their partner that you can't you're you're seeing it with like complete blinders like you don't realize what a fucking tool this guy is, you know, because he's fun. He has a motorcycle. He's a nice apartment and, you know, probably fucks like a champ or whatever. Uh, <laughs> he's got a you yeah. know, he's got a big dick and everything, you know. Yeah, it, it, exactly. <laughs> and. The, the first meeting between Mark and, and Heinrich is really interesting because Heinrich kind of has the upper hand. Like, he's trying to be, like, the nice guy. Like, hey, it's a bad situation. But, you know, he just basically says you got to get over it. And to add insult to injury, Heinrich beats the shit out of Mark. Yeah. He bests him in a physical confrontation. So yes, just to add it, insult to injury, yeah. <laughs> and another hint of his new, he's doing, like, Tai Chi when he's, like, fighting him. <laughs> Dude, I, I laughed the first time I saw that scene. Where he just he does some like bullshit far eastern form or something when he fucking knocks the guy down. It's so funny. Yeah, exactly. And he's like, you know, like fucking Mark's all bloodied and fucked up and you know, Heinrich Heinrich definitely bested him, but then they meet again and I gotta ask, man, what did you get out of that scene where Mark is talking to Heinrich on the staircase and Heinrich is acting very strange? Yeah, I thought he was trying to kiss him at one point, you know? Like, he's, like, yeah, touching him. He's, like, being way too intimate with him, you know? Yeah, he's waving his hands around and careening around, like, uh, stumbling into walls and just act like it was... I, 
could not make, I was like, man, I, I'm not sure what they're trying, maybe like they're trying to show like all oh, this guy's like aren't into like psychedelics and he's really high and, or maybe to show that, you know, Mark kind of has the upper hand in, in, in this mentally, like they don't fight again, but Mark is a lot less alarmed by Heinrich, Heinrich's presence this time. Well, and maybe that's some sort of form of acceptance of what's happening. Because I agree with you, because in that same scene, Mark tells him, I used to be afraid of you, but I'm no longer afraid of you. There you go. Yeah. yeah. So he's come to come to terms with the fact that, you know, okay, this guy's banged my wife at now or soon to be ex-wife, you know, and, and like, you know, they talk about how great he is, you know, how good at fucking this guy is too. Yeah. You know? And, um, and that's like a nightmare too, isn't it? Isn't that like a, a, a total nightmare that you, you would have like, you know, you you have like a significant other in your life and then, you know, you find out that they're cheating on you and then you learn that this guy or woman or whatever is like the best ever at that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like and such a fucking horrible feeling, you know? Yeah. And she's not cheating on you with Brad Pitt. She's cheating on you with Heinrich. Yeah. Like some <laughs> like, fucking old man, basically. <laughs> just some fucking like clown, like, you know, maybe like, maybe that's a bit of a two mark, like doesn't really fall for this guy's bullshit. And uh, yeah, that's part of his amusement. Like, you know, like I see your fucking game and I'm not impressed. You know what I mean? True. True. Um, but, uh, you know, so, you know, Mark does what an, any sane person would do and hires a private investigator. The worst <laughs> See, private investigator ever. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> Again, like, it, I, I was like, I actually wrote down, I was like, is this supposed to be funny? <laughs> like, um, like, you know, he follows her. It's very obvious. She catches on that she's being followed. Um, and turns out she has like a secret apartment. At least I, I I didn't like remember it being mentioned elsewhere in the movie that of why of her having a second apartment. I think that that's the reveal that she does have her own place. Yeah, definitely. That that's something that's a secret place for her to go, and we find out why. Yes. Okay. Now this is where we get into the more. Uh, this movie's been strange to this point. Here's where it gets very strange. <laughs> um, you, she is harboring some sort of squid-like creature in this apartment, and I gotta, gotta the, the way this apartment looks is is not accidental. I really think this whole apartment is some sort of metaphor for guilt or grief, something like that. Because the apartment is filthy and dirty, and the bed that this squid-type creature is laying on is just all kinds of like dirty, slimy, gross, all these things I think are feelings that Anna has about her behavior. You know, she's got this kid at home, she's got a husband, but she has this secret apartment where she goes and fucks people. And she probably has some feelings about that that are darker. And the whole look of the apartment and the, that bed, that mattress on the ground uh, definitely reflects that. Yeah, and let's let's think about let's talk about that for a minute too, because like right up until this point, you know, we're we're thinking like throughout the film, maybe because we're you know cis male, uh, you know, whatever guys, <laughs> we're know, guys. We're yeah. we're thinking in terms of Mark's experience, you know, where you know, let's also mention that Anna is 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 insane too and possibly possessed. You know, she's like the house is in disarray. 
you know, she's all these very extreme. There's a scene in the subway where she's like you know, throwing herself on the floor and this like viscera oozes out of her body. And, you know, it's it's like what you would imagine, like uh, a possession scene to look like. Hence, you know, maybe the superficial reason for naming the film possession. You know? Right, but I don't think she's possessed by any other world entity. No. I think the title more or less refers to like like your feelings, uh, like um, grief, things like that. I think that's to me that's what I got out of the title, like possession and Mark Anna is Mark's possession. Mark is Anna's yeah. possession. Yeah, that's how um, I was reading it after watching it a couple times. And like now, you know, of course, you know, like I said, first run through, you know, we're a bunch of couple dudes here you know thinking, <laughs> yeah. yeah mark man yeah she you know she's just you know who needs her you know like whatever she's like out of her mind she's crazy you know she's cheating on you banging all these guys you know whatever but the more you get into it it's like okay well there's always a, a cause and effect in the world and like even you know in relationships it's like yeah there are a couple of bad seeds out there that just like to bang go out yeah you know. but you know they're both good looking people I imagine there was like a lot of uh, physical chemistry in their relationship. People grow apart, but they also, they're driven. People are driven to go outside of the relationship. I think by some force or some neglect or some kind of misunderstanding or someone is not being satisfied in a certain way. And I think the fact that Mark is off on some assignment for some extended period of time is telling about how he's absent from the relationship, you know? Like, he's, yeah, not, he's it, not really there for her. So, therefore, she has to go outside the relationship to be fulfilled. And that causes yeah. all this, like, guilt, you know, and feelings and d darkness and all that stuff. Yeah, no, a a absolutely. And uh, it meant, I think all of that manifests itself in this creature. This creature, I think... Well, there's a couple of ways to look at it. Is any of this real in the apartment? Is the apartment real? Is the creature real? Or is this like there? This could be Mark's projection or thoughts about what's going on behind his back. Or this could be, you know, just taken metaphorically. This creature, this how this disgusting apartment is just some metaphor for for Anna's feelings and guilt, and it's not exactly real or meant to be taken. Literally, um, I, I got a feeling about that too. I, I have a statement I think here about okay, that. Okay, yeah, well, let's, yeah, I'd love to hear it. Like once again, I think this is being a fever dream. You know, this is a projection of the creator's, you know, world. So this world that he's in is real. It's just not the real world that we live in. This world is like the dark projection world that. The, the writer that, you know, Zalowski created, you know, out of mm. whatever, whatever drama is going on in his life. This is that painful, dark world that he created that he plays out all these characters and feelings in. So I, I'm taking the what goes on in the film at face value, understanding okay. that this is like a fairy tale almost in some ways. You know what I mean? Sure. No, I get that. And. So, you know, she kills, not for this creature. In a lesser movie, the whole movie would be about this woman killing people to feed this creature and make it more 
real. It's kind of like what Hellraiser is about. I actually wrote down Hellraiser. Like, I yeah. was like, I guarantee you Clyde Barker has seen this and was heavily influenced by it to make Hellraiser. I could dig that. Yeah, totally. Um, but she doesn't kill to feed the monster. She kills to keep her secrets. And again, which leads to like the theory that this is all like, you know, all, all about this is all some manifestation of her guilt. She doesn't want anyone to know what she's up to. So she's not feeding this thing. She's she's just keeping it from from everyone. She's keeping this whole side of her um, to herself. And anyone who finds out has to die. Yeah. Yeah. That's what and, I was reading, too, because like there's a, there's a several murders that take place that have to do with concealing this like secret that she has right and then you get to that famous subway scene i i think i well okay famous might be an overstatement but when people do hear about this movie they almost all of them know about the subway scene i think it was a meme or something um just from a technical level this scene is so well shot there's maybe there's two cuts in it it does feel like this was meant to be one take but uh clearly they couldn't get it in one take it involves practical effects. Um, it could not have been an easy scene for the actress to shoot. It's basically three long takes of her completely having a meltdown and convulsing. I kind of, it felt like you were watching like a Jarbo concert or something, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, and it ends with her on her knees. And like you said, just, this slime blood and like what looks like yogurt is just spilling out of her mouth, her ears, her hair, all of her orifices. Like it is highly disturbing and people like look at it. She's even telling Mark about her um, miscarriage, which I guess is what we just witnessed, but it's not a miscarriage of a living, breathing, uh, or it, it wasn't a child. It was, she mentions it was the death of her faith. And she has this long sort of monologue about that. Uh, um about faith and uh i i, I think that right there like is again a, a metaphor for that so it's sort of symbolic of the death of her faith and her marriage and religion i think right before this scene you, they show her staring at a cross and she's clearly dismayed by the sight of this thing she's not i don't even know what the word is for it she's moaning but it's not sexual it's disturbing so, I, I mean, it, that's the only religious really moment that I picked up on in the movie, which is, I mean, that, that scene with the cross felt a little out of place to me, but, you know, whatever. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I barely remember the cross scene. I just remember her going, you know, going deep in the subway system like that. You yeah. know what I mean? Like yeah. That, that was, like, almost hard to watch, really. I mean. It's very hard to watch. Yeah, she's just wailing and and, like the way that she was projecting i just i just i can't i just imagine that taking such a incredible physical toll on doing a scene like that and it goes on and on and on it seems like 10 minutes past what she's doing this yeah it's all like it's like watching the the uh the uh you know the 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 the, the scene in irreversible <laughs> like <laughs> you're gonna say like that man yeah yeah that uncomfortable um and that much of a giving performance too. Like again, I'm very wish I could have been like just a fly on the wall for that scene with the with the director and the actors of like you know of, of what she has to do, what she's thinking, what's her motivation for for this moment. And she really gives it her all. I mean, there like you know I joked like oh it's like watching Jarbo, but there's like nothing comedic about this scene 
at all. It is played completely straight, and it is one of the bigger moments in the movie, sort of like its big centerpiece. And, you know, these are practical effects with the slime oozing out of her. Um, I should also note, this is the same guy that did did E.T. Really? I didn't know that. The guy who created E.T. created, like, the special effects for this movie. Oh, I was going to say, I thought thought you meant, like, Andre Zalowski. I was like, what the hell do they have to do with E.T.? (laughs) Now that, his version of E.T. would be something I'd like to see. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it's a very powerful scene. It's sort of the the, the centerpiece. And, And I guess, like I said, like the death of her, the death of her faith. Yeah, she's she's a I, I I gotta say that I don't I I think most of her films um are European, uh French films, TV series, things like that. I I've never seen I haven't seen any other films that she was in. Um, sure you have. She was in okay, um, okay. <laughs> uh, Nosferatu. Oh, Werner Herzog. Ah, all right, okay, all right. I stand yeah, correct. There's no way. Yeah, I there's no way you didn't see that. <laughs> no, I did. I, I've seen that many times. Yeah. That's a masterpiece. Yeah. Um, so yeah, at, at this point, like the, the movie is really, you're either with this movie or, or you're not, or you shut it off at this point. You know what I mean? Cause it's basically like an hour of people screaming <laughs> and, and now there's a squid creature and, uh, now a lady's having a miscarriage on, uh, on the, on the subway. And she has sex with the squid creature too. She does. Yes. But towards the end, which again, when this thing is like more fully, Formed, she's saying almost, almost like it, like while they're having sex, and you realize again the doppelganger uh, theme comes back uh, at, at, at that point because we realize this creature is okay, spoiler. This creature is <laughs> Mark. Yeah. And do you have any like what, what do you think that's trying to say? Like for me, like. I wonder if it's some sort of comment on mistakes we make in our life. Uh, like creating this perfect image of, of the perfect partner in your head. And you just sort of end up with the same version of the same person over and over again. Yeah, there's a couple of different ways you can cut this. Um, you know, there's the, the way of looking at it, which is like negative, that you never learn from your mistakes and that all this guilt and ugliness just manifests into the same person that's going to be in your life over and over again, you know? Mm. And then there is another way at the end because Mark jumps, there's two Marks by the end of the film. And one of them plunges to his death when he jumps off of the, the staircase. And then you're left with the other Mark, which is the doppelganger. Right. And also at this point, Anna has like, you know, she was shot up. Because I, I guess the nefarious operatives are, are, are back in the picture. The man with the pink socks, uh, they've come for Mark. And um, they shoot Anna, and Mark. Anna's dying. She takes her own life while she's dying. Um, and Mark jumps off the staircase. Um, and you're left with these new versions of the characters we spent the whole movie with. Helen is 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 in the house with bob the son and mark is knocking at the door and the son is so horrified by this he jumps into a bathtub and uh, he drowns himself like basically yeah 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 that that scene was very disturbing man i thought 
very disturbing. Um, again, like a, a big part of this movie is collateral damage. Like all the people that that are hurt by this breakup because it's you know the, the neglected son. It's all these people who had to die, you know, and his friend isn't spared in all this. Like uh, she's killed. It's not even really even mentioned. <laughs> like she's. Um, uh, there's a lot of collateral damage here. And in the end, I found the ending very apocalyptic and probably the only way a movie like this could end with a big statement of like a divorce is, is all consuming apocalyptic. Yeah. I yeah. think that is the period at the end of this sentence um, of this strange, strange movie. Yeah. Yeah. And even though we basically ruined it for everybody <laughs> with the plot, <laughs> It's not even about this at all. I mean, you, you should, if you can find this movie, definitely watch it. And you might even come up with a completely different, uh, you know, interpretation of it. Oh, totally. Yeah. I, I, like, even like you and I have different ideas about different things. But if you're going to grade it, Mike, what would you give it? Five. Five out of five. Five out of five, too. Not only is it a five out of five, this is... Maybe top five, definitely top ten of my favorite horror movies ever made. Watching yeah. it again for this podcast has confirmed confirmed it for me. Uh, it's a masterpiece. There's nothing like this movie. You've never seen anything quite like this. It might be a bit of a slog for some people to get through. It's a little long. It, I had one criticism and maybe drags a little bit in parts. There were some... Scenes I think that could have been tightened up, some that really didn't need to be there at all. Um, but if you're along for this ride, if you give yourself up to the, you're going to be. This is your kind of movie. You're gonna, I, you're going to love this. If you like Enemy, if you like Lynch's films, like this is definitely something worth seeking out and to have in your collection because you will look smart. <laughs> you will look like you like art movies. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, all the ladies will be impressed, or guys, or, or or maybe not. Like as I'm finding out in in the real world that there's like there's only like a, a short list of women who like cool stuff. Uh, that can be debated, <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, man. Like this, I, I think this movie being so obscure sort of adds to the experience of watching it. Like you're watching something that like not many people have seen and or not many people know about. But, uh, it, and it's strange too, because it has like a, a, you know, a major star in Sam Neill. He's not a nobody. He was back then, but he is a known name now. I would imagine he has fans that want to see stuff that he's done. And they probably don't even know that this movie exists. I love Sam Neill. He's, he's just too, one man. of those actors, you know what I mean? He's been around, he's been doing tons of cool stuff in and out of the horror genre. You know, yeah, I think most people know him as a guy from Jurassic Park, and uh, he's done some great genre work. I, I think the first time I remember seeing him is in a great Aussie thriller called Dead Calm. Yeah, I saw that. That was really cool. He, he's he's yeah. from uh, either Australian or, New, or Australia or New Zealand or something like that. I think his accent sounds Australian to me, but that doesn't mean uh, he he could be uh, uh, from New Zealand. But I I think think he's Australian. Let's see here. <laughs> All right. Saying? Oh yeah. Oh my God. We're both wrong about that. Really? It turns out that he's a Brit. 
His accent is definitely Australian. <laughs> he might be British born, but he's Australian. Oh, wait, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Hold the presses. Nigel John Dermot Neal is a New Zealand and Northern Irish British actor. Direct. What the fuck is that? New Zealand and Northern <laughs> I- Northern Irish British. Born in Omagh, Northern Ireland. Mm, okay. Then moved to Christchurch, New Zealand. Okay, so there you go. That's how he picked up his accent. Ah, okay. He was born in Northern Ireland, but grew up in New Zealand. Kind of, kind of like, almost, but not exactly like Angus and Malcolm Young. They were born in Scotland and uh, <laughs> and grew up in uh, Australia. Oh, okay. There you go. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Sam Neill's great. Uh, and a couple of John Carpenter films. He's great in uh, in the Mouth of Madness. One of my favorite horror movies of yeah. all time. Severely underrated as for a Carpenter movie too. Also was in John Carpenter's um, Invisible Man movie, which most people would, I think, forget exists or would like to forget it exists. He was in possibly one of my favorite sci-fi horror films, Event Horizon. Great movie. Although I hadn't done a rewatch in a while, but the last time I watched it, I just remember thinking the music's really dated. And it was like yeah. the only really complaint I had about it. I mean, it's almost 25 years old, man, but it's still, I still get a lot of enjoyment out of watching that movie. It's a great, it's almost perfect. I really feel like in a different director's hands, that movie would have been like an all-time classic. But as it stands now, it's, it's very good. It, it's, it's a good, good, effective horror movie. Yeah, I, um, I, I really enjoy that movie. But, you know, I'm really glad you wanted to do this. This is some movie I've been wanting to talk about for a while i hadn't rewatched it in a long time and it was really really good to sit down and really like you know knowing i have to talk about it to really give it a level of attention that the movie deserves because it's not something you can casually watch this is you know demands your attention and demands your brain power you really it's one of those movies it's great to watch with someone and 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 talk about and talk your way through it like what did i just watch what does all this mean um, this is one of those kind of movies. Yeah, the, the more, kind of movies I love. Yeah, more people should know about it, you know. And and it's also this is one of those films that people talk about and you read about it, but it's like you should really go out and experience this film if you're able to. Yeah, I know. I'd really love to know Sam Neill's and uh, and the cast's thoughts on it. It seems like it'd be a very interesting movie to talk to the people involved with about because it's so unique it's so demanding of the actors and obviously the director who i think sadly passed away some time ago uh so um obviously we won't be seeing any interviews of him in the near future about that but um i want to ask if you're familiar with this director's uh, work have you ever seen anything else by him this is the only thing i've seen by him i have another one of his movies uh i organized everything by director and i realized because like, oh Oh yeah, I have one of his other movies. Um, it's called The Devils, and uh, I've started it twice and could not get through it. Oh wait, you know what? I did see that movie. Yeah, very so I, ha- I have seen slow. it. Yes, yeah, it is. It's very slow. Yes, but it's actually it's it's a really good movie. It has, I think it's, that's it's about like a wedding in Poland. Right. Yeah, I'll have to take your word for it because I literally remember nothing about it. Yeah, I didn't realize this, that he made that film. Yeah, and I think other than that, like uh, you're shit out of luck as far as American releases of, of of his films. And it's interesting that this guy didn't go on to create some uh, bigger movies in 
in the in the 80s because you know in the 80s a lot of these like weird horror directors are being like asked to make like star wars movies <laughs> like kind of like they are now yeah. <laughs> you know you know you had david cronenberg in line to direct uh return of the jedi you know he was a choice that the studio like wanted um can you imagine what that would have been like that would have been or imagining this guy making like a big hollywood movie i, I would love to see that i i love to see when indie directors get a ton of move, uh, money to play with and see what they come up with. It's always infinitely more interesting than what some studio guy would come up with. Unless, of course, it's a series Moon Knight, which is a huge fucking disappointment. Dude, tell me about <laughs> it, man. What a drag. It fucking, yeah. you know, like I, I had such high hopes for that one. Me too, man. And I was just like, I thought like that was Benson and Moorhead's show. Like, they only they did were, two like, episodes. Yeah. Yeah, they just directed. So, you know, not putting the blame on them. They're great. Uh although, you know, I their episodes didn't really have that stamp on it. It just kind of seems like director for hire work. Yeah. It was very weird. The show was very weird. Uh I still have one episode to go and I'm a completist, so I will watch it. But man, I think after the first couple episodes I, I never lost interest in something so fast. Yeah, me too. Like I haven't finished the series yet. I mean, I'm definitely going to finish it, but it's like, I'm like, man, I, this is like a real disappointment, you know? Yeah. Unfortunately, hey, they can't all be home runs. I would have liked to have seen that show in their hands the whole time and what they would have come up with. Cause I think it would have been infinitely cooler than, than, than what we got. I agree. Yeah. It would have been cool if they had like that, those like dialogue rich, like segments that their movies usually have where there's like these conversations and dialogue and all that stuff. I, that's what I love about their movies. Yeah. I was going to mention at the top of the show, I also rewatched uh, spring after my first day at my new job. So good. And it, 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 I would say the first hour or so is, is, is perfect. And the whole movie is so richly atmospheric, but I, I have some problems with uh, the last 30 minutes or so of the movie. Yeah. I could, I could see that. Yeah. Yeah, but it's great and, and totally worth your time and kind of the outlier of their body of work, like the most outside of what they normally do, seemingly anyway. It does connect, though, to the other films by the, men it does. the mention of one character, actually. Yes, but in tone and everything, this, it's uh, more of a drama that sort of slowly reveals itself to be a horror movie. And it's the least weird of their four movies. Yeah, definitely um, more straightforward, less cosmic horror, definitely. Yes, but we love those guys on this podcast and uh, never say anything negative, really, about those guys. Their films are always, even if they make a stinker eventually, I'm sure it'll be way more interesting than most of the dog shit that's turned out nowadays. I, I also like when they act in, in the films, too. Yeah, you know, like uh, I think the endless gets criticized a lot for the acting, but uh, I think they do a serviceable job in that. Obviously, they're not—it's not Oscar Isaac and uh, and you know uh, fucking Ben Foster or something like that. But it's fine; it doesn't take you out of the movie. I mean, they're they're good. Yeah, I believe they're in their new movie as well. I they, believe they, they are, are the main actors. Yeah, yeah, yeah they are. Yeah, I, which I can't wait to see. Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to that. And I'm looking forward to seeing The Northman I'm about to watch in about 20 minutes here. Dude, enjoy it. It's, uh, it's just, you know, I mean, you, you, were, you were bragging to me about your, uh, your home entertainment system before we started this. So, so you I got... wouldn't say I was bragging. I was telling you about it. <laughs> you were like, uh, 
you know, making me feel humiliated by my pedestrian uh, technology here. But, you know. Yeah, you still have a VCR, right? Yeah, I, I, I have a VCR only. So, um, <laughs> and like one of those square, like, like fucking tube TVs that weigh like 300 pounds. Yeah, that's exactly what I have. Um, but yeah, I mean, so you, you have the right environment to enjoy that movie. So it could, you know, definitely have, have a good time watching it. Yeah, man. I feel like I should be drinking like, you know, mead and listening to the neurosis to prepare for it. <laughs> well, on that note, guys, Possession is a masterpiece. I really consider it one of the best horror movies ever made. Uh, well worth seeking out. If you can find it for a reasonably priced, it, it'll look really good in your, uh, you know, European horror section of your, uh, your Blu-ray collection. All right, guys, we got one more episode before the short break. So everyone, uh, you know, have a good day and we'll talk to you next week. Take care now. Take care, everyone. 